Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello there, and coming up on the podcast, Ian Morrow at the Prairie Climate Center on this new report that says Canada is warming up twice as fast as anywhere else. Mark Belash, a local photographer, will talk about his latest shoot, very interesting stuff, and Ron DeRico will talk security with the head of Impact Security on the podcast. Please rate the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast, and now the podcast. Okay, so here's the uh, story that we're talking about today. A report by Environment and Climate Change Canada warns the country is warming up at double the speed of the rest of the world. Climate science advisor Elizabeth Bush says there are two vastly different pictures for Canada depending on whether the world makes significant progress on cutting greenhouse gas emissions to zero by 2050. If the world can do that, the average temperature increase in Canada by the end of the century will be less than 3 degrees Celsius. If it can't, parts of Canada will see increases of between 7 and 9 degrees with greater increases in the far north. Basically, the bottom line here is Canada is heating up twice as fast as other parts of the world. And uh, I wanted to play a couple of clips, and then we're going to talk to our guest here. This is Mike Spence. He is the mayor of Churchill, commenting on the warming of the weather and climate change. Listen, the mayor of Churchill. Uh, our summers are longer. Um, that's noticed. Our bear season, uh, our polar bear season, is are also longer as well. Uh, the shipping opportunities uh, are there. And one more clip here, Arctic Gateway. They run the rail line to Churchill. The Northwest Passage offers 7,000-kilometer shortcut from New Jersey to Shanghai. Churchill is the only commercial deepwater port in northern Canada. Climate change has extended the shipping season. All right, so our live guest now on the phone, Ian Morrow. He is an associate professor at the University of Winnipeg. Good afternoon, Ian. Hello. Thank you for doing this. So let's start with Churchill, and then we'll move in other parts of uh, the province. But up in Churchill, climate change, is it too much to say that it could be a good thing for that community? Well, you know, with something like climate change, there's going to be uh, risks and opportunities as the climate warms. And again, we're talking about anthropogenic climate change, human-caused climate change uh, because of the release of fossil fuels since industrialization. And so the report that you referenced, it's talking about that, how we're warming up because of the greenhouse gas effect and the fact that we're trapping this heat. And so, you know, this is happening globally, but climate change ultimately has hugely local consequences. And so I'm a co-director at the Prairie Climate Center. Center here at the University of Winnipeg. We study this stuff, and when you talk about a place like Churchill, the research that we have based on the best available climate science says that the loss of minus 30 days in a place like Churchill, the historical average is about 50 minus 30 days, and in that kind of high carbon far future in the 2050s to 2080s, that's going to drop to about 5 minus 30 days. And so we're going to see this absolute loss of the extreme cold in places like Churchill. When you look further up in the higher Arctic, it's even more extreme. And so, yes, this is on the horizon if we don't abate our emissions. And when you talk about good and bad, you know, the mayor said it himself, you know, when you've got tourism like polar bears, well, if if it warms up that much, the polar bears are going to be stressed. There's serious research out there saying that they could potentially leave these areas and go extinct in certain areas. So is tourism going to take a hit? Yeah, likely. Uh, Is it going to create a boon for shipping? Possibly. 
inevitably. And so we need to look really carefully at these trade-offs between risks and benefits. Yeah, that's interesting because, see, I sort of saw the glass half full there. I thought, oh, well, the uh, the polar bear season will be longer, which means more people can come and see the polar bears. But, yeah, you make the point on the other side. What does that mean for the polar bears? Yeah, no, they're talking about the loss of sea ice right. in this report that you referenced. And yes. when we see the loss of sea ice across Arctic and subarctic ecosystems, that's the sea ice platform that, that biology lives on top of and underneath. And so the polar bears hunt on the sea ice. The, the main food source of polar bears is seals, and they den on the sea ice. And so when the ice recedes, the denning habitat of seals is, is potentially lost, which causes this knock-on effect. And so we're talking about serious risks to uh, species in that area of Churchill. So it's not just, oh, it's warming and things will be better. We'll be able to kind of have, you know, nice warm temperatures in the winter. It it has serious consequences for ecosystems that the real trick, they talk about adaptation, right? And and the question is, can we adapt? Can we figure out a way forward as our environment changes around us? And as humans, we're smart. We have, you know, all kinds of ingenuity that we can deploy, but a polar bear has its sea ice and it has its uh, ability to adapt to a certain extent. But ecosystems are going to change so fast in the next hundred years that these species might not be able to cope that quickly with the change. So that that gets the question of mitigation. Well, do we need to seriously rein in our emissions? Yesterday in Manitoba, we got a carbon tax at the pump. People need to realize that this is part of shifting behavior so that we actually maintain the possibility of a viable life in Manitoba and the world. And and I understand this report is bad. I, I get that. I just thought maybe there might be a benefit for a community like Churchill. I understand there's lots of negatives here. I just thought maybe there was a plus in there. I was looking for the silver lining, Ian, and and, and you you shot that down. So uh, what about down here? What sort of impacts would we see in Manitoba then uh, if this happens, if this uh, climate change, this warming continues, how will we see that impact Manitoba and Manitobans? Uh, you know, just to be clear, I'm kind of a half full guy. Like, I think it's important to see the opportunities here. And so, you know, when we talk about the South, you know, there's a serious opportunity for different kinds of agricultural systems based on uh, uh, an increased heat regime. And when we look at the number of plus 30 days, so the opposite of minus 30 days, when we look at the warming in southern Manitoba, if you look at Winnipeg, it's likely going to go from about 11 plus 30 days in the average baseline period of 76 to 2005 that's kind of an average summer 11 you know plus 30 days to upwards of 50 plus 30 days in the 2050s to 2080s if we do the kind of business as usual we don't bring in emissions and so you know 50 plus 30 days you know as your listeners are, are kind of reflecting on this that's like two months of plus 30 and if we actually think about what that would mean for people in apartments, for elderly people with health issues, these are serious things that we're going to have to contend with around, you know, cooling shelters. How do we look out for people that that, that, that need kind of support in that kind of extremes? And as we'll remember from last summer, people died because of heat waves in Ontario and Quebec this past year. So this is real. This is happening. But the silver lining, let's be half full people, you know, the, 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 the possibility of a different kind of agricultural system, if again, we start to think clearly and we start to invest in adaptation strategies. So agriculture is not going to be able to change that quick to a water deficit in these kinds of regions. We need to think about landscapes in completely different ways. As water falls on the land, we can't be shedding it off our agricultural land because we want to sow seeds. We need to be storing that water so that when the heat kind of ramps up and we start to have water deficits in our landscapes, we can use that water to kind of seed the ground and and water 
the crops. And so there, there's a whole different way of thinking that we need to respond to, to again, get away from the half empty to, you know, half full situation so that we can, we can be prosperous because, you know, again, I don't want to offer some sort of dire warning here, but I've got three kids and I really truly worry about their future when we think about the types of changes that are happening. And we get, we got get caught in the weeds around the headlines, around scandals and what's going on in the U S and we need to double down about thinking about our own home home, what it means in a changing future, and how we rally our governments to support and invest in big systems change. We need electric vehicles. We're a hydro province. We need electric vehicles all over the cities uh, where we can use them. Where we can't use them, we need investments in strategies so rural people have good transportation. We need to take big initiatives here, and it's not just the globe responding. It's each and every one of us in all of our places. But how optimistic are you, Ian, that we can get all of that done? Like the number in the in the story I read at the start here says we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions to zero by 2050. Do you see that or, you know, and, and talk about electric cars. I had a story yesterday where in Norway for the first time ever last month, they sold more electric cars in Norway than cars powered by fossil fuels. So some parts of the world are doing this. But can we do this? It it seems like a pretty big ask to me. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just not so sure we can. I'm enjoying this conversation. I think you're asking good questions, and, and I think the, the, we have to frame it in the opposite way. We can't not do this, because when you look at the, the, where that number comes from, the 2050 by globally carbon neutral by 2050, and just let that sink in for a second. Yeah. Again, your listener, let that right. sink in. Globally carbon neutral by 2050, that's not that far away. So yes, it's a monumental, monumental task. Mm. But the question is, if these, you know, reports are, are, are indeed going to kind of portray the future that we will likely have, which I do believe they do. I think the, the science on climate change has been very robust for many years. What they said 30 years ago is coming true today, true to today. So we need to, we need to kind of heed the warning of what this science is saying. And if we are looking at a future where, you know, we're talking about plus six degrees globally, you know, the, the impacts locally are crazy. We're a northern nation. We don't think of ourselves as that sometimes, but we're a northern nation. We're going to get hit here, here hardest, fastest. And so... I think the question is, do we have an option not to? And I, I don't think so. I think we absolutely have to try. And the cool thing that happens when you when you make the commitment, when you say, yes, we're going to do this, all of the innovation that follows that. And when you think about places like Norway, they made the commitment a while ago. Europe is really far ahead on some of this stuff. And you're seeing cleaner, greener, healthier landscapes. And I mean, urban cities, you know, I mean, you know, rural places, people are living better lives. They're healthier. There's less pollution in the air. This is not some sort of, you know, uh, conspiracy theory by the left or by a bunch of, you know, people that want to see green energy take over oil and gas. That It's not that. It is literally an existential threat to human survival. And I don't say that lightly. I'm an academic. I take facts very seriously. But that is what people are talking about here. And so I don't think we have an option not to try. And the cool thing about Manitoba, again, we're a hydro-endowed province. We have all of the tools at our disposal to not only get this right, but to be a innovator in the world. If we show the world, hey, look at how you do agriculturally differently. Look at how we power energy systems differently. Look at how we look after vulnerable communities in northern places like Churchill. We have so many diverse communities and ecosystems that we're like a test lab for the world. And if we took that seriously... 
And if our governments took that seriously and we started to act on that, I don't. I think we would not only solve the problem, we would be exporting solutions. We would be making money. I'm a half full kind of guy. Yeah, I love your passion on this. And, and I only ask you, and I understand when I say to you, can we do it? You're saying we have to do it. We have no choice. I understand that. But you, I, I wish you could be in studio and see the text messages that I get while this conversation is going on. In fact, I'm just going to share a couple with you and, and, and you, you can react, Ian. Um, Bob says, these guys are always kind of funny when they talk about electric cars. Does he realize what it takes to build an electric car? Plastic, lead for the batteries, rubber for the tires. Uh, What do you say to, to Bob? I mean, he's not wrong, but I guess an electric car, even though it's built with all this stuff that's not good for the environment, will carry on to be good for the environment. Is that fair? Uh, Bob is absolutely right. It's a world of trade-offs, right? It's that the electric cars are not a panacea. They're not going to solve the world. And I don't want to pretend to say that if we just start driving electric cars, everything sorts itself out. Right. Yeah, there's battery issues. There's rare earth minerals inside those batteries that are scarce and, and limited, and they are not going to be able to be produced the way that they're produced forever. We, we, we need to take steps in the right direction. And, you know, electric vehicles are, it's quite amazing what's starting to happen with some of the big car companies and the commitment they are making. This is an inevitability. It is literally going to happen. And so it's not if, it's when, Mm -hmm. and the when should be sooner. And so, but at the same time, we have to hold these industries accountable. They are not some sort of, you know, miracle industry. They're going to have their own complications. And each step that we take to kind of move in the right direction, we have to be critical. We have to be thinking like Bob saying, hey, how do we make this better now so that the next generation of our thoughts and ideas and actions actually work better? You know, and and one more, I'll just make one more comment and then I'll give the final uh, words to you here, Ian. But, uh, you know, uh, other people are reacting that we get this report on the same day that the carbon tax comes into effect in in Manitoba and and a few other provinces. And people, the ones that don't trust the the science here, they're kind of going, BSC, it's coming out on the same day as the carbon. You, You understand, you know, this is how some people feel about this out there. And I totally get it. You know, we uh, we live in an era where, you know, they talk about post-truth, where, you know, facts are being questioned every day, where, you know, there's so many scandals in public office all over the world that we're, our, the denigration of our public systems are, is at an all-time high. And so, you know, it's hard to actually have trust. And that's actually what we need more than ever right now. We need trust in each other that we can figure this out. We need trust in science, but we also need trust in communities. I work with Indigenous communities. I work with farm communities, you know, we have to hear these voices too, because there's important things coming from the ground up that really need to be heard. It can't be, you know, the top down pointing down saying, you got to change. You know, we need solutions from the ground up. And when you talk to them, I love the mayor of, you know, uh, Churchill, listening to these voices saying, hey, this is the reality. And that gets us away from the kind of political ping pong of, of the issues, right? Let's listen to communities. Let's hear where they're at. Let's figure out where the solutions are grounded in real truth in the landscape. And so science is a, helps to frame and guide us in a certain sense, but I'm a true believer in that communities need to lead this stuff and, and be at the front lines of deciding how it works in their own community so that there's buy-in, so that it is accepted, so that it works, and so that trust operates in communities. And so, I, 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 I you know, the timing of this, it may be political. I don't know. But at the same time, we need to kind of also take on the severity of the thing and not kind of 
just question the whole enterprise of what's happening with climate change because of a potential political win that a government may have had on releasing a report on the same day of the carbon tax. At the same time, as the carbon tax comes in, we need to realize that this isn't some sort of, you know, again, political propaganda to get a bit, but a bit of money into government coffers. They're really trying to figure out how to incentivize moving towards a new direction. And when you look at, you know, eco policy related to the economy, this is there's, you know, the best reporting in in the economy says this is how this works. This is how we incentivize change. And so again, I I just I, I ask people to think carefully, not to necessarily you know jump on these things and 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 ultimately think about our kids and grandkids this is this is what we're talking about and it's it's got nothing to do with politics it's like what kind of future do we want to leave our kids and and i think everybody can relate to that so maybe let's have that as a starting point for the conversation not a bunch of you know doubt around you know government and let's move forward in a good way and demand that these governments work it work for us Let's make sure that we have a healthy, viable future uh, for Churchill, for Winnipeg, and for the rest of the country and the world. Ian, I appreciate your time. Great guest. Thank you very much. Cheers. Ian Morrow at the University of Winnipeg. They've committed dozens of armed robberies and several cold-blooded murders. What do you plan to do about Bonnie and Clyde? We will capture them. Write that down and underline it twice. This is 1934. Gangsters, submachine guns. And you put cowboys on Bonnie and Clyde? Texas Rangers. This is an emergency alert. Police are not yet releasing details, but have stated that Bonnie and Clyde may have struck again. That is a bit of the trailer, a new movie on Netflix, which I just happened to watch on the weekend, and then I heard from my next guest, who has been a guest on the show before. He is a photographer in town. His name is Mark Belash. His company is Vintage and Vogue Photography. Mark, nice to see you again. Well, hello, Al. It's very nice to be here. Yeah. So you sent me an email and you said, hey, look at the latest photo shoot I did. And it just, the the movie is about the men that tracked down Bonnie and Clyde. You have done a fantastic, we had you on the show a while back with the two disabled women that ended up in a pinup magazine in the States. Uh, And this time you again got two women playing Bonnie and Clyde in a photo shoot that you've done, but you've kind of centered it around a bank robbery here in Manitoba. Yes, that's right, Hal. Uh, I shot the uh, this photo shoot, uh, it was actually last summer, and uh, it was in, I shot it in St. Anne, which is about 20 minutes from Winnipeg, nice small town. Yep. And, I mean, my photography, my studio, our sort of philosophy is we have about 80% women clients with the pinup and the boudoir. So, sure, yeah. Um, we like to sort of do empowering confidence-building experiences, and that's what my project shoot was about. Mm -hmm. So I thought about the Bonnie and Clyde theme, which has a strong male lead in the original and sort of a female sidekick, but I wanted to change it up and have two strong female leads, and so I changed it. I kind of, I wrote the story in the blog as the two ladies as being siblings of the originals. I think it it was like grandchildren. Right. And... Yeah, we. Uh, it was a great shoot. It was uh, a whole bunch of locations, outdoors, indoors. Uh, we sort of staged a fake bank robbery with faux guns and 
period correct kind of things, outfits, and yeah. uh, it was quite fun, quite exciting. Uh, tell me about the robbery, the local robbery. What what are the details with that? Well, I needed to, I thought about how could I do that, of course, without going into a bank, and all the banks nowadays... <laughs> they wouldn't are, put you, no. they wouldn't let you in there, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of them are quite modern. Yeah. So... They actually have, of all things, a church in St. Anne that's very old, beautiful architecture on the outside. Huh. So I approached them for permission just to shoot the exterior. There's one door that it's very ornate brick. Right, yeah. And I used some Photoshop for the to, sh- to give the bank sign. And, yeah, we had the girls coming out. I have um, actual sort of money bags from banks. Yeah. And one girl had a machine gun, another one sort of a fake sawed-off shotgun. And yeah. Uh, dressed up, and it looked like they were coming out after a robbery. And it's funny, you didn't time this around the Netflix movie at all. And and the interesting thing, I, I guess I didn't realize this, but in watching that movie uh, about the men that tracked down Bonnie and Clyde, Bonnie and Clyde were maybe the first, the original reality stars, right? I mean, the people loved Bonnie and Clyde. They were robbers, but the, they it was almost like a Robin Hood situation. Absolutely, yeah. They had that. They were infamous, but uh, yeah, yeah, if there was paparazzi, there was sort of paparazzi back then. Right. They were take, trying to take pictures of them, and th- that movie showed how they were. Uh, even when they were, once they were killed, yeah, people were trying to grab souvenirs off of them, yeah. and they loved them. It was yeah. uh, it was an odd situation. Well, you've done a great job again. Uh, what's your website? You can find your website on my social media feed. You can go on Twitter. I know it's on Twitter at Hal Anderson. And I'm going to talk to one of our online journalists here and see if we get the pictures up and a bit of a story at cjob.com. But how can people find your website? Uh, it's vintage and vogue photography.ca. And uh, if you just if you Google pinup photography, uh, yeah. Winnipeg, we should be on page one, and we do all kinds of stuff for the ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Mark Bielage. Why is pinup so popular now? It's kind of made a comeback in what the last five or ten years. Uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, getting bigger. There's, uh, but I mean, there's magazines that are doing it now, and I know there are people here in Winnipeg like you that are very serious about it. And... Yeah, there's also a big convention in Las Vegas that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Viva Las Vegas! It's mm. world renowned. Um, it's also a community that accepts all body types. Right. It's it's a very friendly, accepting community. So you don't have to be you know a size two. Curvy is in back in the day, and Curvy's in now with pinup. Yeah. So it it welcomes everybody, and I think the ladies enjoy even a time-traveling experience, too. Yeah. You kind of get away from, you know, the hectic pace of today. Sort of simpler times, eh? Yeah, exactly. Instead yeah. of driving to a physical destination, mm-hmm. go take a vacation to another decade. Yeah, I love it. Mark Bielash, uh, the website is vintageandvoguephotography.ca, or if you can uh, get to my uh, Twitter feed, at Hal Anderson, you'll see that uh, Mark has uh, posted something there, and I've, I've shared it. Go and check out the pictures of uh, Bonnie and Claire, or Bonnie and Bonnie. Bonnie and, we got to think it's, of another it's, name. It's actually Bonnie and Claire is the way Claire, I Claire, there you go. You thought, I see I missed that. Bonnie yeah. and Claire. Go and check out the photos. Very cool. The security measures are very, very strong and detrimental to anyone who wants to go into the library. That is uh, one of the organizers of this read-in protest this afternoon. And uh, it got me thinking about security. Now, in this case, they don't like the security, but everywhere you look now, there is security. 
We've got security guards now at the liquor marts, security guards at churches. That's not unusual, but five, ten years ago, it would have been. And to chat with us a bit about it is the president and CEO of Impact Security, Ron DeRico. Ron, good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, my friend. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for doing this, Ron. So give me some other examples. I mentioned a church. Where else do you send your security guards now that five or ten years ago you never would have dreamt of it? You know, it's it's a very climatized industry in so many ways, but it's always evolving. Um, We've had really bizarre requests, uh, you know, to... We have people that uh, hire us for their house because, you know, they, they go on trips. They want us to stay in their house, uh, come in, look after their animals. Uh, we have people that uh, will hire us because they're going through a domestic disturbance. Um, you know, they they basically, uh, you know, they're going into a situation where they have peace bonds on each other and we're there to prevent uh, anybody from breaking any sort of laws. Uh, we've been in, uh, you know, to religious uh, compounds, uh, you know, to, because of protesting or just because of, uh, you know, to people that uh, may have some uh, fear for vandalism or some uh, other activities that may be perhaps uh, happening. It, it's uh, it's a very different uh, time and age where five to ten years ago, you wouldn't see the demand for security services be where they are today, but. They are changing. Everywhere you look, you'll see security more or less uh, coming up. And in lots of cases, I think it might be kind of a liability issue too, right? Like if you're running an event, a small event, in the past you may never have hired a security company like yours or a security guard, but now you do because if something goes down, you want to protect yourself as the organizer of that event, right? That is correct. Uh, The onus always comes back to the event holders and a lot of... uh, uh, places where the, you rent uh, the halls and uh, uh, buildings that uh, provide the, you know the the events to be uh, functioned on or uh, events being held, they won't let anybody have an event unless security is in place in most cases uh, because they know the damages or liabilities will be substantial and they'll be against themselves. And uh, like at the Millennium Library this afternoon, this this read-in uh, protest, I mean, although uh, we see more and more security everywhere, not everybody likes the idea of it, I guess. Well, you know what, in, in, in fairness, I, I understand what's going on at the Millennium Library, um, and I understand what their plight is. Unfortunately, because of the way the place was designed and with the scope of what they're trying to achieve, um, they're limited to how they're uh, moving people into an ingress uh, situation, which is causing some lineups. I, I really believe that they will uh, find the better way of solution uh, will present itself to help them uh, overcome that obstacle. And I think, too, now, I'm sure just about everybody listening right now can relate to this. How many times have you been in public or in a drive through and you get approached by somebody that may not be dangerous, but it scares the heck out of you, right? And so I'm sure you're seeing that now, too, companies bringing you in in cases where there may not really be anybody dangerous, but they're just trying to keep people from being scared or or upset or you know i think about downtown winnipeg and all the conversations we've had about 
is the downtown dangerous, right? Well, I think for the most part, you know, the city is very safe. It's just the perception, and I think the the tolerance levels are um, heightened because, you know, when you see somebody in disabled clothing coming up to you and knocking on your window, and you're of, you know, you're with your family in your vehicle, or you, you, get, you know, their intentions are probably very noble. Uh, when I say noble, I mean like they're just asking for right, you know, some spare change or uh, something to eat. To, you know, they're they're not looking to rob you or carjack you, uh, but some people they they have this mentality where they what they don't understand or their tolerance for it is uh, you know it, it makes them uncomfortable, which will drive down a, a business and. The, the property owners are trying to do the right thing by trying to make their locations, uh, you know, functional for people to come in and make purchases. But at the same time, they're also trying to uh, guide um, the harmless, uh, you know, uh, transient people that come onto the property, off mm. the property with uh, without using any force, but just, just to make them aware that, you know, we, we prefer not to have that activity on the site. Yeah. Ron, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. My friend, take care. Have a wonderful day. Ron DeRico is the president and CEO of Impact Security. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.